0: Our scripture reading this morning uh, is going to be Matthew 19, 1 through 12. You'll like to turn in your Bibles. I want to remind you, uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible at home, uh, you can just take the one right in front of you, bring it home, it's a good Bible. If you have someone you know who doesn't have a Bible, Bring it home for them. That's what we want. God's word in the hands of people changes lives. <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are so kind to your people, that you have given us your word through the ages to lead us, to keep us from our own sin tendencies and natural fallen nature, and I thank you that you give us Jesus Christ as the one and faithful one who has kept your covenant, who lifts our eyes up, and doesn't let us get down on ourselves because of our own failures, and I pray that you would speak through this jar of clay, that these words would come powerfully through you and that your word uh, would uh, illuminate the hearts of those who are hearing it. Lord, bless this humble sermon given in your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as we turn our scripture uh, attention to the scriptures today, in Matthew 19, uh, we're going to see... <clears throat> We're going to see uh, what happens when beginnings are hardened. So let's turn our ear to God's word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this, saying, But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrable word. So we have uh, we have here uh, movement in our uh, sermon series through Matthew. Uh, I actually think that this could be my last one for a while in Matthew. It looks like we're going to uh, plan to go a little different route here. So one day I may come back here. But today um, we're going to, uh, to finish, uh, to start uh, one of the last sections of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 19, all throughout Matthew, he, is, uh, he, he sums up the little sections of Matthew with this heading. Uh, he says, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so that kind of wraps up this last group and, and kind of pushes us on as readers to think what's coming next. And what's coming next in Matthew is that we are preparing for judgment. Uh, in this section, you will see uh, not the Beatitudes from the first section, but a parallel Instead of blessings, we have covenant woes. That's going to come in just a little while. Um, and so here you have Jesus's uh, judgments on things. Uh, he just finished the section of what the church is supposed to look like. What does the kingdom of God on earth look like? And if you can remember the last time uh, that, I, that I preached, uh, we preached through uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant the one who forgot what it was to be forgiven his huge debts before the Lord and couldn't forgive his brothers who owed him so little. If you remember, we just came from the section that taught us all about uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the seriousness of sin. And it warned us as teachers especially not to teach little ones to sin. And it and it shows us the love of the Father for His lost sheep, that He doesn't desire anyone to perish, and that if someone sins against you, that there's a way, a way to, to do that rightly in the church. This is, is the shape of the church. This is the way that the Holy Spirit is molding God's covenant people. And so we, we have been entrusted with the gift of reckon with the ministry of reconciliation. But this is, uh, and, and so as we, as we go into today's teaching with uh, new eyes, looking at uh, what's in front of us, uh, we see uh, that the Pharisees are coming up and they're going to try uh, to trap him. They had things going on in their world uh, that, that they thought that they could, uh, they could make use uh, to their advantage to trick Jesus. Um, in this particular trap, uh, you think, what are they trying to trap him to do? And if you remember, uh, he just came from, uh, uh, earlier in the book, we, uh, we saw Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, get, tra- uh, get beheaded by Herod himself. And not too long after this, the Pharisees are going to go to the Herodians. And so you can see them kind of plotting together and thinking, if we can get Herod upset with Jesus, maybe he'll just take him out for us. We won't even have to to worry about it uh, because we kind of have our own view on things and we're not such a big fan of Jesus. So that's one of the things uh, that, that could spring the trap here. If he says something wrong, then maybe Herod will treat him like John the Baptist. Another uh, part of the trap you know, is to see where he fits in uh uh, in, the, uh, the t- um, in the balances of the teachings of their scribes. They had people who were uh, liberal on the left. They had people who were conservative on the right and who wanted to uh, interpret the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy 24, which is uh, what they refer to here with the, the decree, these, uh, uh, what they say is the command to give a certificate of divorce, which Jesus corrects. They're looking at Deuteronomy 24, and they're saying, where do you fit into this? Where do you fit in? You see, our, our people, uh, all through my lifetime, I'm a product of the 80s. That's when I was born. And all through my lifetime, uh, people are trying to see where we fit in. And this is, this is uh, one of the usefulness of, of songs. Every generation has them especially now. And so, um, so I would like to take a trip. I'm not going to go all the way back, but I will go back through my lifetime, starting in 1980s, um, to a couple of popular songs uh, through our day that kind of see where do we fit in and what's this message that our culture is trying, is trying to give us. So if you'll go back with me, uh, Brian Adams wrote this in 1984, but it's called The Summer of 69. You know that song? If you turn on your radios back then, it was a popular one. Here's what he says. He says uh, in his refrain, he says, Those were the best days of my life. Standing on your mother's front porch, you told me you'd wait forever. But the way you held my hand, I knew that it was now or never. Those were the best days of my life. Yeah, that's that's one of them. So Brian Adams captures the joy that comes with hope for the future but it's twinged with a little bit of sadness because those are the best days of his life. He's not looking forward. He's looking backwards, meaning that uh, his hopes were unrealized for who knows what reasons, but they never really panned out. Then uh, if you grew up in the 90s, that's really when I started loving music. And uh, there was a music... uh, Uh, A song in 1997, if you turned on your radio, Uh, you can listen to the the portrait of the man that Natalie Umbruglia uh, described in her song Torn. Uh, It's a little different beat, probably not as popular as the last one, but still, it's my generation. It said, I thought I saw a man brought to life. He was warm, he came around, and he was dignified. He showed me what it was to cry. Well, you couldn't be that man I adored. You don't seem to know or seem to care that your heart is, t- is what your heart is for. I don't know him anymore. There's nothing where he used to lie. Our conversation has run dry. That's what's going on. Nothing's fine. I'm torn. I'm all out of faith. This is how I feel. I'm cold and I'm ashamed. It goes on from there. But this captures the disappointment of getting close to someone who later turns out to be very different than they first appeared. She revealed too much of herself uh, to, uh, not to feel deeply wounded when her commitment wasn't returned. And there she was, left alone, ashamed, and cold. The disappointment of hope. <laughs> hope deferred. And fast forward 14 more years. Uh, this is one that some of uh, you kids certainly know. Even if you weren't alive in 2011, it's popular enough that it's probably made its way to the radios now. Uh, and this one's by Adele, certainly one of your parents' favorites. Says someone like you. Uh, and so this she turns up out of the blue, uninvited. She can't stay away. She just can't fight it. She's going to come and she's in the... Tell what's going on here. And so this is what she says. Don't forget me, I beg. I remember you said, something. sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. Sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. Only yesterday was the time of our lives. We were born and raised in a summer haze, bound by the surprise of our glory days. All of these capture the essence of a time. They capture uh, the, the message for a moment. And all of these talk about a hope deferred. And there's a chance that you know some of those reasons that hope lets you down. <clears throat> Proverbs thirteen twelve says, A hope deferred makes a heart sick. These are fun songs. And nostalgically bring you back before the days that your hopes were dashed by disappointments all of these songs were a product of their time they probably won't last forever um, but they capture a moment in time um, and so what they capture this this moment this youthful hopefulness this this Summer haze of bliss, where everything is good, hope is high, and life is worth living. Uh, this, this is, uh, this is oftentimes how beginnings start. But beginnings—the truth is—the beginnings don't always end that way. And our world has a propensity to harden beginnings. And so as we go through our scripture today and we look at how beginnings get hardened and what to do when beginnings harden, I want you uh, to take this away, to think through this. <clears throat> uh, to, uh, I want you to persevere under pressure for the Creator... Holds you by his spirit through the gift that he has given you. Let me say that again. As we go through today, I want you to, to remember to persevere under the pressure of this world. For the creator holds you by his spirit, by the gifts that he has given you. And so as we go through here, we're going to look a little bit about marriage. But he also uh, is going to deal with divorce. Um Marriage he sees as a gift that some can receive. And there's he ends this section looking at another gift, and that is the gift of singleness. Um, and that is a gift that he also gives. And so whether you are married or whether you are single, this is a, uh, this is a message for you to know that the Holy Spirit is the one who will sustain you and hold you fast. And so persevere regardless of how hard it seems. So let's turn our attention to the text here. In verse 3, we see the Pharisees coming up to him and testing him and asking the question about lawfulness. Is it lawful? And so as we look at this, one thing we can take away is that when it comes to determining right and wrong, what's lawful and what's not lawful, when you come to the fork in your road, when you're not sure which way to turn, there's a moral some moral. Uh palpability on both sides. You, you just don't know uh, where to go and you have to figure it out. Uh, the best place to, to, to put your confidence in is the Bible. That's what Jesus does here. So he, he goes to the question of, can you divorce your wife for any cause? Willy nilly, can you just divorce your wife? He says, have you not read? Have you not read? So when you have a moral problem, go to what you know is true. The scriptures are what we read. And they're not just a song you hear on the radio that will be gone tomorrow. This is the lasting word of God that will be here tomorrow, that was here well before you and will be here. Not one dot iota will pass away. Not one until they're fulfilled. That's what Jesus sticks his confidence on, God's words. And so he says there, have you not read? You created them from the beginning, made them male and female. And so we see uh, how God made pe- people from the beginning. And so he's referring here to the account in Genesis. In Genesis uh, 1, he'll later on go to Genesis 2. Uh, but in Genesis 1:27, he makes male and female after his own image. And so here we learn about marriage in a very confused culture. If you turn on your radio now and seek for a definition of marriage, you'll find something very different than this. But the marriage union that God blesses is the one that he started off from in the beginning. It's that he he made mankind male and female after his own image. And so the marriages that... Uh, God blesses the marriage uh, that is marriage is between a male and a female. And he said, because of this, or therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So here we see that God makes a husband and a wife one flesh through a covenant, not a contract. And so I want to think about this together because I think we can look at marriage two ways here. We oftentimes do. You can look at marriage, as Jesus does here, as a covenant, or you can look at it as a contract. Now, if we see marriage as a contract, it actually is. It cheapens marriage uh, by redefining it uh, like this. It's instead of uh, the the permanence of a covenant. When we think of marriage as a contract, we think of uh, marriage as a relationship that is mutually beneficial to both sides. So it's got to work for both of us here. And if this contract ceases to be beneficial at some point then it can be discarded in place of a better deal. Think of all the contracts that go void. When you void the contract, and then I'm going to look to enter into another contract with someone, someone who can. It's, the permanence uh, is really not the thing in view here. It's the benefits that I'm receiving from this contract. But that's not the way that God has made marriage from the beginning. And remember, before things are hardened, they're soft they're malleable they're they're beautiful they're the way that things are they're, uh, i mean think about that first time when you you realize like you love this person think of that when you first loved your wife or you you when you first realized boy this guy is something special i think i would like to spend my life with him what a freshness what a, what hope what inspiration comes i mean those those are the days of spring before the, the, the fall and winter come. That's it. Those are beautiful, beautiful times. <clears throat> marriage as a covenant is a sacred bond. Christopher Ashe defines a covenant this way. He says relationships, uh, a marriage, uh, a covenant is a relationship that the parties involved have chosen, unlike natural relationships like a parent and a child. So pause for a second. Children... You guys have a relationship with your parents that you didn't ask for. You just opened your eyes and they said, "Hey, mom, <laughs> hey, dad." And this isn't the covenant that we're talking about. The the when we're looking at a covenant, we're looking at a relationship uh, where uh, uh, where you've chosen. So even though it seems like you have a very permanent relationship with your parents because that's you live in their house, that's where you've always grown up, there will be one day. When there's a more permanent relationship, if you ever choose to be married, if that's a gift that God bestows to you, if he doesn't gift you with singleness, one day then you'll be called to be married. And that covenant is going to look very different than the relationship you have with your parents. You will actually have to change the relationship with your mom and dad. And you'll have to, to cling to this new spouse in ways that form your own unit and and bless the world in your own unique way. You'll be separated from your, your parents in a way. So there's a more permanent relationship coming than just between your mom and dad. But but Christopher Ashe uh, goes on to say, um, a re- <clears throat> covenant means a relationship with obligations where each has made certain promises to the other and entered into commitments, in this case, to be husband and wife with all all that that means. With all that means, you now have obligations on you that you have promised, and you've entered into this covenant. So what is God's role in this covenant? So he's not just another party in this covenant, uh, but rather he sees your binding covenantal vows on your wedding day, and he views them as a witness. If you break a covenant, then you are answerable to God himself. This is, uh, listen to the language of Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. He says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Do you hear that? She forgets the covenant of her God. That she is bound by covenant and God serves as a witness to that. What about in Malachi 2.14? It says, Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The Lord here is pictured as the witness Standing, watching, observing all your promises. And so it's really true that if you break the covenant, uh, if you break a covenant with your spouse, you are answerable to God Himself. This is no small matter. So, marriage as a covenant then is between a man and a woman because He has made them male and female. It is a permanent and exclusive union. Nobody else can butt in here. Uh, it's actually inappropriate and against your vows. Uh, marriage as a covenant joins husband and wife together by God to be one flesh. And so this is a relationship that is tight knit. I like the picture of uh, that um, that we often use when we think of babies being knit together in their mother's womb. Because who does that? It's God. God knits you together and forms you in the darkness of your mother's womb. He knits you together. And I think that's a great picture for the unseen things that are actually happening when God unites two people, man and wife, together. He's knitting you together in ways that you can't even see. There are ways that you can see, but he is joining what used to be two, and by the Holy Spirit's power, he is making you one flesh by there's some mystery here. It's it's happening. You don't even know all the ways that he's uniting you. But nevertheless, this doesn't talk about. Uh, it doesn't talk about how God joins people together, but it does answer who joins people together, and that is God. God is the one who joins people together. There in verse six. And he says therefore what he has brought together let no man separate but the truth of the matter is that man does separate what god has joined together it doesn't say that man can't separate what god has joined together as if they're always seen married uh some some people would view uh, that marriage covenant as always married forever, um, and that's uh, that is not what uh, what it says here, um, here in uh, in uh, verse seven. It says, "Let not man separate." And so hardened hearts really can tear marriages apart. Hardened hearts really can tear marriages apart. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Pharisees, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said them, uh, and notice here that they said, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? So then in verse 8, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allows you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for the sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so hardened hearts tear marriages apart. Uh, We're looking here at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Uh, And so so, uh, the difference uh, that um, uh, the interpretation of Deuteronomy is that this is a command from Moses uh, that uh, you are to write a certificate of divorce. Jesus says this is not a command. He allowed it. Um, Why does he allow these things? Why does he allow this exception? Uh, Is it like he just winks at evil and says, oh, well, I'll allow it for now. But later on, I'm going to change my mind and take it back. I don't think that's the case. I think instead, uh, what we see here is that what was, what was so beautiful in the beginning before sin ever entered the world was marred by sin. And as a necessary result of sins, people suffer and, and, and that there are guilty and innocent parties. And so God puts this exception, he allows this exception to protect the innocent parties in Israel. Listen for yourself, Deuteronomy 20, uh, 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, And puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." And so here, the exception is given to protect the innocent party from this willy-nilly divorce, this divorce for any reason. And so on one side, people, uh, Jewish teachers are saying, "If uh, if your wife cooks bad meals and she keeps cooking bad meals and she keeps burning it over and over again, that is enough grounds to say, this is indecent. Get out of here. And on the other side, they're saying, "Hey, it doesn't matter if your wife burns the meal, but if she's still faithful to you only." Uh, but then, then that's the, if. But but it's it's not about a meal, but her faithfulness. And if she if she refuses to be faithfulness, if she leaves and goes somewhere else, if your husband commits adultery, then uh, then you can write the certificate of divorce. That's that's. Uh, what's happening here, um, and so so you can see then how in Jesus' day men are tearing what God has joined apart. They are taking what God has knitted together and made holy, and they're making it. They're they're uh, they're making it. Um, they're making they're 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 uh, defiling it. They're they're making it uh, uh, used for their own purposes. Um, not for the Lord's purposes, and so uh, we really do see. Even though Jesus says, "Let not man separate," then He goes on to show this is how man has separated, and there is uh, there is a um, an exception uh, clause for this. So this language of joining and separating this is the language of of body language. So this is the this is like a body. Um, coming together, being knit as one, or being torn apart. So I want you to think for a moment of a soldier coming home from war uh, because he was injured in battle and he lost his leg. What does he do? He goes to rehab for his leg. He has to get perhaps a prosthetic leg. <clears throat> he uh, Through rehab, he gets stronger. Uh, but but uh, if but for a for long time, there's phantom pain in his leg. Uh, he has to continue to come back and remind himself that even though it feels like he has his leg, he remembers having a leg, but it's not there anymore. No longer will he ever have his leg. It's gone. It's been ripped from him, torn apart. It's painful, and it's not like it's just going to go away tomorrow. He's got to figure out how to get along now without an important part of his body. This is a traumatic experience, one that many counselors uh, in our area are treating people even now for. Um, How do I get better? How do I figure out how to cope with this kind of trauma when things are wrenched out of place? So the point here uh, is that divorce is traumatic to all those who go through it because God has joined together. And when you rest, when you, when you tear those apart, I like the old marriage vows that don't tear asunder what the Lord has put apart. When you're tearing, it is a tearing and a painful process. The gut-wrenching pain that divorce causes leaves deep marks and memories. For God had knitted two together, and because of the effects of sin, hardened people tore that union apart. And so, divorce hurts. Divorce hurts all parties. Divorce hurts everyone. And so this is why it's important not to view marriage as a contract. Because when we view marriage as a contract, This cheapening of God's intentions, of covenant vows, hurts people. And it's hard. I think anybody who's in marriage right now would say it's hard. It's hard sometimes to see eye to eye. It's hard sometimes because the other person doesn't change very fast. I think some of you who are sitting in there who aren't in marriage now, would say, well, yeah, it's hard. Look at my, look at, look at my scars. Look at where marriage has left me. It didn't work out. Marriages fail for all different reasons. How powerful does Satan seem to be when it comes to marriages? When you look around and you see the state of marriages, or it's you just think, is there really hope? Should we get married should we even get married i, I was listening uh to a, a show the other day, and uh, these two people were going on a date, and the the woman uh, came to the to the date uh and uh and the the man was rather tainted and kind of uh, was picking up on some of what this uh what this uh what his date's uh, expectations are here, and he he just pauses the date for a minute and he says, "Well wait, let me just get this clear. Um, are your expectations here that this is going to end in marriage that's going to last forever?" He said, do, he said, you must have parents that are still together, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I do. That's right. He said, well, mine aren't together. Mine never were together. And that's not actually what I'm hoping for out of this. I've seen the ruin that marriage can happen. And I'm not really looking to get into that because look at the mess that it made. And so he just drew the line in the sand and said, this is not my experience. Marriage is not this beautiful thing. It hurts. It hurts everybody in it. It's hard. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And that's not really what I'm aiming at here. And I think, I think a lot of people are a little scared to get into marriage. In fact, I know this to be the case. And we're not talking, uh, I'm talking about all generations. Uh, let me start off with, the, with, with kids. Uh, so teenagers especially, turn your ears, your 20s who are single. Listen, this is, this is oftentimes what, what I'm seeing. Living with my boyfriend lets me try out and see if we are actually compatible So we're going to know then if we're going to last in marriage. But I want you to judge for yourself, kids. If making up your own terms for the most intimate relationship in your life, if that's going to provide the sticking power you need to keep it together till death do you part. Faithful marriages are not built on finding that perfect match and just trying out like a smorgasbord. What am I going to take today? that just right someone. That is not what perfect marriages are built upon. Uh, but there's another pitfall, and I see this more with my grandparents' generation. In fact, my own grandfather uh, was, uh, this was his case. Uh, I had a grandpap, I called Grandpap Tornetta, and I, and I had a, someone I didn't really know how to refer to them, I, I just called them Ginny. Uh, but they, they were they were married by common law because they'd been together so long. And so this is the way that this reasoning goes, I think. Living, uh, my loved one would lose their social security check if we got married. So I'm going to choose not to get married. Uh, but I want you, if you're in this situation or thinking about it or know someone is, think about it. Wait for yourself. The security you gain from a check against the security you receive when the Lord blesses to keep together what he's put together. What are we looking at that's going to last here? The check can't do anything. The check doesn't show up at night to go to bed. It just leaves you cold and ashamed and undignified. And so some people would say because of this, it is better not to marry. And those were the people in Jesus' day that weren't even the Pharisees. The people who responded to him in verse 10. The disciples are the ones who said. So these are the people who are generally for Jesus and with Jesus. And the disciples said in verse 10, well, if this is the case, if we're really in a bad marriage, that's really hard to figure out and we have no way out because I can't view this as a contract, but I have to remember my... Covenant vows, and that God Himself is a witness to it, then maybe I shouldn't get married at all. Maybe it'd be just better to not get married. And I will grant you that marriage is scary. And that there are a lot of ways to fall off the road from the right or the left. There are so many different parts of sin that ruin marriages. But Jesus would not tell you to avoid marriage because it's hard. Instead, this is what he says. In verse 11, he says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So if you have been given the gift of marriage, you can, uh, you can receive it. And, and the one who God joins together, he is going to be the one who upholds you. Even though though there will be times when you sin against your spouse and you prove to be a very selfish and self-centered person as a husband, not nourishing and cherishing your wife, as a wife, not seeing your husband as somebody you even want to follow, let alone actually following you. Because if you followed him, maybe your life would end in disaster. I mean, do you really trust him that much? These are, the, these are those things. I mean, this is the, the, the issues of trust in relationships. And, and certainly, there will be times when you have to come and you have to work out what it means to be a Christian in a marriage. You're going to have to go to them and say, hey, look, you really hurt me here. Did you know that? And, and they're going to have to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I messed up again. And sometimes there are hard times when you're actually going to say, I don't think we can get this done by myself. I actually think we need to talk to our pastor or to our elders because we're just not meeting eye to eye here. But that's exactly the way that the church is supposed to work. And that's the exact, the exact uh, promise that you have that where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is. In their midst. That promise is for disagreeing people, for people who sin against each other, can't see to eye to eye, need to be reconciled. So when I tell you that the one who joined together in the beginning is the one who keeps together, you have his word. His Holy Spirit will do this, but it's gonna be hard and it, it is gonna be traumatic. But I would say it's not as traumatic as tearing apart what he's put together. And it's gonna cost you. It will cost you so much. There will be tears. There will be sleepless nights. There will be loneliness. There will be times when you have to ask for forgiveness for the eighth time or the hundredth time. When you have to remind yourself that you need to forgive this person 70 times, 70 times, 70 times seven. Every time they come, you've gotta be ready. This is the kind of softness that the Holy Spirit brings to you. And what a blessing it is when the Holy Spirit is a part of a union. When two Christians unite. How powerless must it feel if you're listening to this sermon and you know that your relationship is not built on the rock of Christ. That you don't really believe the Lord that you are not relying on his strength to keep you together, but you're relying on your own determination and self-will. I I just love this man, and I'm going to love him anyways, and I'm going to try my best, and that's what it's going to be. Let me tell you that the sinking sand of self-determination and willpower only foolishly inspires confidence that what you are building will last. You cannot hold your marriage together in your strength. But there is great promise here in verse 11 that you can receive this saying, that even though it is so hard, that there is not another way, and there's not an easy way out here. With one exception here. Paul mentions other exceptions. We actually read part of those exceptions for desertion. Uh, in our reading of the law, that's why I put that in front of you today, uh, but here th- this is there's just not many good there's not any good ways out and there's certainly not any easy ways out and in fact, you shouldn't be looking for an out at all, but instead look for the Holy Spirit's help to knit you together where you're coming apart at the seams because he'll do it, and you can receive this gift from the Lord if it was if you are a gift if you are in marriage you have got the gift you don't have to ask about it now receive his help through it but not all are gifted that way and so um and so here uh just one word as we uh as we look to the end of our verse here uh, our section here one word to those uh, who are single that those that there there's a gift of singleness because he says here at the end That there are three types of eunuchs. One eunuch, the last one, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Friends, this is spiritual language. Uh, People have messed this up and cut off body parts because they struggle with lust and they struggle with their sexual desires. That is not what Jesus is saying here. It may seem obvious, but I want to state it. Because here he is saying that some are gifted with singleness for the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be a eunuch, that you would not have kids. There's other reasons that you don't have kids. Some people cannot have kids because of the way they were born. Some people cannot have because of an accident or or an atrocity of men or of mankind making them not able to have children. But some people in this beautiful picture that Paul actually takes up and Jesus takes to the cross make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, and so that's that's why I had to tweak a little bit uh, the the beginning of my of my sermon uh, because what God has gifted you with, uh, He's talking both to the married and the unmarried here, and so while it is true that the creator who created a married couple who joined you together will keep you through all trials. It is that same creator who promises, uh, who gifts singleness to single people. It's a gift for them. They can, live, they can live and they don't burn with desire and they're not out sowing their oats, wild oats everywhere. They're not going out and, and living at large as if, they don't, as if their Lord is not Jesus. But rather, for even for a time, some people can say, "You know, I am going to be devoted to the Lord, and I'm not going to be hindered by by marriage, uh, hindered in the in the sense where I have to take care of a family because I'm a dad." But a single person who's wholly devoted to the Lord can do for the ki- for the kingdom things is free to do for the kingdom things that married people um, cannot do because they have commitments to their families. And so it is a beautiful thing when single people serve the Lord. And this is the exact, uh, this, is, uh, what, what, um, this is what, what uh, this is what many of the reformers found themselves in. They found themselves in a church after making vows to the Catholic church saying, I will be celibate forever. But in the Reformation, you saw many of these these Catholic priests embrace the Reformation and say, this this was an unlawful oath. I shouldn't have done this. I've bound myself in ways that I shouldn't have. And so they actually took wives to themselves. And so I I would tell you not to run headlong into these vows of celibacy. Because they're not necessary. You don't need to bind yourself this way. Because if the Lord so moves you later on, you can still move and be married and, and be given different gifts. That's fine. But just like a married person can't keep themselves wholly united to their spouse without, uh, in their own strength, a single person cannot keep themselves wholly united to the Lord in your own strength. It is by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who are able to receive it, let them receive it. So if God has given you, the, gifted you with singleness, serve him well. And if God has gifted you with marriage, rely on the Holy Spirit and serve him well. I left out that for singles. Rely on the Holy Spirit and serve him well. Because the one who created you is the one who will keep you together when all else is failing.